0: right, our Old Testament reading comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 9. When Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. If you turn aside from following me, You are your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a taunt among all peoples. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping them and serving them. Therefore the Lord has brought this disaster upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel readings from the book of Luke chapter 19. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke Glory to you, O Lord. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were spellbound by what they heard. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Would you pray with me? Our God, would you be with us as we open your scriptures? Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you have given us the gift of your word and spirit. Thank you that you've given us the gift of your son. And we pray now that as we, as we sit with your scriptures, that you would give us grace, that we would open our lives to you, that we would invite your transforming work in us, and that you would uh, draw our minds, our attention, our hearts, our affections, our allegiance all toward you. And we commit this time now to you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Where is God? That's a question that we've been sitting with a bit over the past several weeks as we've been tracing what we've called the backstory to God's coming to be with us in Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us in human form. Uh, we've been doing that the past several weeks uh, you know, after Christmas in the season of Epiphany, where at Christmas we celebrate God showing up in a, in a unique and unprecedented way, as a person in Jesus. And, uh, and now what we've gone is say, hey, let's, let's, let's read the prequel, right? Let's let the whole long story of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible unfold as we focus on this theme of God being present with his people. And one answer that keeps coming to the surface as we dig into the story of God's presence and ask the question, where is God? One answer that keeps coming up is, the Lord is near. God is always nearer than we think. We've followed this story through Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their long season of wilderness wandering, and we've reflected on both the mystery of God's presence and the difficulty of living by faith and hope amid distressing circumstances and times of prolonged uncertainty. And I for me personally, as we persist in this wilderness experience of COVID life, uh, and this continued disruption and time of uncertainty. Those wilderness stories have been resonating pretty powerfully with me. I don't know, maybe they have with you, but I keep going back to the wilderness stories where we see God being present to his people in the desert, in the unsustainable intermediate state where they find their source of life in God, where they find their home and their security. In God. And they're not fixing their hope on some future set of circumstances that they might call normal or sustainable, but rather as they move through the abnormal, as they move through the unsustainable, they find their sustenance in God. So we've been tracking with that story. But today we come to a really different episode. Uh, In the story of God's presence, because no longer at this point are the people sojourning through the desert. They are now an actual kingdom with an actual king and an actual territory of their own. And we find them in this episode kind of at the peak of what we might call a golden age in Israel's history. King David and King Solomon represent a high point in the story where the people are united under God and under God's anointed king. And so David was the military leader who defeated the Philistines and secured the kingdom. Solomon, his son and heir, the king of peace, that's his name. He's the one who will now build the house of the Lord, this temple in Jerusalem, where God will dwell in the midst of God's people, not this time in a tent at the center of a a moving camp, but now in a magnificent building on a hilltop in the capital city of a real kingdom. In other words, Israel's circumstances have dramatically changed since the last episode that we were, we were dropping into last week, right? So they're no longer in the trying situation of wilderness, where their vulnerability is obvious and life feels fragile. They're now in the triumphant circumstance of peace and relative prosperity in the aftermath of victory, where their vulnerability is not as obvious as it used to be. And it might be easy for them to feel like, I don't know, they've arrived, that that normal that they'd been hoping for is finally here. So the episode of the story, I think, gives us a new window to look through uh, that's helpful Uh, a window through which to peer again into the mystery of God's presence and to examine our own lives and consider our own lives in relation to this God who is with us. Because if if you're like me, situations of suffering or stress, or we might call them the wilderness struggles, right? Our struggle in those moments is, is to trust that God is actually able to help us, right? Those are moments where we feel what we lack, where we feel the need for help. And our question, our struggle is, can God actually help me? Will God actually help me? Does God care? Do I matter to God? Am I alone in this? Is God someone who's really worthy of my trust and allegiance? Those are the wilderness struggles from a place of weakness, right? But in situations of security or success, the struggle's really different right? Maybe you know this from your own life experience. Our struggle in moments of success or security is not to wonder whether God can help us, but it's to maybe forget that we live as dependent creatures to begin with. It's to live as though we actually don't need any help, right? The struggle of success, unlike the struggle of the wilderness, is the struggle of actually believing that we are not our own God or that the life that we're enjoying that's propped up perhaps by things like wealth or our ability or our job security or our networked relationships or whatever, that those things that we see as propping up our life, that those themselves are not actually the gods that are worthy of our service and trust. The struggle of security is different than the struggle of the wilderness. And that struggle with success or security is actually the one that's going to come to define Solomon's life in some pretty profound ways uh, toward the end. And it's going to lead to some pretty serious ramifications when Solomon himself fails in that moment of prosperity. And he does turn away from the Lord. He does turn to other gods he does do the very thing that is warned that he's warned about in this very passage. And I think for us, as we drop into this episode and as we consider the story of God's presence, what I'm hoping for us today is that this window into God's persistent presence with us will just give us another glimpse of the faithfulness of God. And will also give us another glimpse of our own, our own weakness, maybe even the weakness that hides insidiously sometimes in our own strength. And so, as we drop into this episode, I want us to just think about the things that the Lord says to Solomon here, beginning with this very first statement I have heard your prayer and your plea. The episode begins with the Lord who is already present. Isn't that interesting? Here we are. The story is about building this temple. Solomon builds a house, and if we read forward, what we'll see is when it's dedicated, the glory of the Lord is going to fill this temple, and God will be present in the midst of his people in a magnificent way. But even before that moment, what do we see? The Lord is near. He's already there. And he hears and he answers Solomon's prayer. That's important. And then he says, I've consecrated this house you've built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. I love that. It's a really vivid image and a really bold promise. And we were studying this text with our staff on Tuesday, and, um, and our conversation began to kind of hover over this particular phrase of my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And I've been sitting with that this week and thinking about the church as this place of God's presence today. And, you know, spoiler alert, you read this episode forward, we do this every week, so you kind of know where it goes, right? We've talked about this already. We are the place of God's presence. God has actually fulfilled in Jesus all of this temple and tabernacle stuff, right? To where God has created a new way to be with his people on earth. And as Jesus has become in himself the temple of the Lord and died and been raised and has sent his spirit to his people, and as, the, as Peter, for example, says, God has built this new temple out of the living stones of God's people, built on Christ, the chief cornerstone. We are the place of God's presence. And in light of this text, the church is this place where the eyes and the heart of the Lord will be for all time. That's beautiful. That's vivid. What does it mean for us to gather in this place under the gaze and in the loving embrace of our God? And what does it look like for us to be a community that understands ourselves to be in the gaze and embrace of the Lord? The challenges. is, the Lord doesn't start, stop talking there. <laughs> as he's talking with Solomon, he doesn't stop with this beautiful phrase of, my eyes and my heart will be there on your, in this house for all time. He keeps talking. And as he keeps talking, that's where we get a little bit of a different tone, right? What we get is a conditional statement. Now, yesterday we had a really lovely day with candidates for elder and deacon. We were gathering. We spent six hours together talking about life and ministry and God and the church and our own stories and how we've been shaped. And one of the powerful stories that we we heard and shared and savored was just the beauty and power of knowing God's grace as unconditional. That what we get in Jesus is the unconditional love and favor of God. And that when we begin, to, when we're told wrongly that our performance is part of what makes God love us we end up crippled in our own faith, right? It's, we end up wanting, feeling the insecurity as if God's love were a function of my own ability to perform to his liking. And many of us have grown up in contexts where we've been given some version of it, where it's like you have to be good enough, or God helps those who help themselves, whatever, right? But the beauty and the power of the grace of God and the love of God is that it is not conditional upon our performance, It is conditional upon God's faithfulness alone. That God, who is a God of love, loves beyond our ability, beyond our deserving, beyond our comprehension. So what do we do with conditional statements like this? Listen to this. As for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me, as David did, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing all that I have commanded you, then... I will establish your royal throne forever. But, verse 6, if you turn aside from following me and go serve other gods and worship then, then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them, and the house I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. That's a conditional statement. And as we know, as the story unfolds, if you've read ahead, what happens is that Solomon does the very thing he's not supposed to do. He doesn't follow after the Lord. He does turn after the other gods, and the story turns dark, right? This story that we're in here is probably happening around, let's say, 977 ish BCE. Solomon's gonna die in 922 BCE, a few decades later. His kids are gonna end up at odds with one another. Civil war will ensue as different heirs to the kingdom are going to get sideways with one another. The kingdom will divide into a northern and southern kingdom, and both of them will end up falling. The, The northern kingdom will fall first to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom will fall second to the Babylonians. And this temple, this very temple that the Lord is saying, my eyes and my heart will be there forever, this very temple will be destroyed in 586 BCE by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So the story does unfold as described, and Solomon's failure actually brings havoc. So how do we think about the conditionality of God's favor in this text? Well, this is the beautiful thing, and this is where we have to let the whole story have room to unfold, okay? Because if you you track through the story of God's presence, we actually have almost like two melodic lines playing at the same time. One is an unconditional promise. And on top of it are laid conditional promises. And they're both both unfolding. Both of those storylines are unfolding. The unconditional promise begins with Abraham, where God calls this guy out of nowhere and says, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to make you into a great family. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to give you a lot of offspring. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to do this. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the peoples. And what we see happen is that that promise that begins to unfold, that is not a conditional promise. That's like, I will do this unless you blow it. That is just a, I am going to do this, full stop, promise. And as you let that story unfold to David, the king, before Solomon, you see another unconditional promise. God re-ups the Abraham promise with David and focuses it now, not just on the offspring in the land, but on a king. And he says, look, this family of Abraham that I'm blessing to be a blessing to all the nations, I am now going to take one of those descendants of Abraham named David, and I'm going to make him king. And I'm going to make his dynasty last forever forever. So that it's not just through Abraham's family, but a specific part, this, this dynasty of David, that will be the vehicle through which my everlasting kingdom of life will come upon the earth. And then there's no clause attached that's like, that nullifies that contract. That's just a statement that the Lord says he will do. Then there are other things that happen along the way too, right? As that story of Abraham to David unfolding toward Jesus goes along, there's another storyline that also happens, right? The people of God are in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, and he brings them in through the wilderness and then into the land he has promised them. And he gives them a law to live by. And he says, look, I'm going to bring you into this land, and I'm going to tell you the way that you should live. And if you... Live the way that I'm calling you to live, your days will go long in the land. Choose life, not death. If you choose life, you will last in the land. If you choose death, you will be removed. Exile. And as Moses is leading the people to the land, he's on Mount Nebo, they're looking in, and he's casting this vision of their life in the land. He's looking out, and he's saying, This is what you do, guys. Choose life, not death. He also simultaneously laments, and you don't have what it takes to pull that off. He laments in his own words that the the people of God need what what he calls a circumcision of heart to even be able to pull off the conditions of this promise. And they don't have it. They don't have it. And so he can see that this story is going to go in a wrong direction, right? Even as they're going into the land, they don't have what it takes to keep the conditions of the promise. But the good news is is that that conditional promise is underwritten by an unconditional one. And God remains faithful all the way through. So that even as God re-ups the conditional promise to Moses here in Solomon, where that promise to go into the land is now focused on a very particular place, even a building, the conditionality of that promise is backed up by the unconditional faithfulness of God who will come to be present forever with his creation and his creatures and his children. So it's a duet. The unconditional and the conditional playing out simultaneously as like two different melodic lines that are happening. And all the story is like various variations on, the, on those themes until we get to Jesus Who's going to be the fulfillment of the unconditional and the conditional all at once? And in Jesus, we see what happens when the unconditional love and promise of God meets the conditional promise of the law. And they're fulfilled in a singular act when God steps into our world in person to do it himself. When the gospel writer Matthew starts to introduce us to Jesus, he starts with a genealogy that goes back to whom? First to David and then to Abraham. This is the one. And then as he starts going forward into like what Jesus is about, what do you get when Jesus starts opening his mouth and speaking in the Sermon on the Mount? I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The conditional stuff. The unconditional love of God made flesh in Jesus who steps into our world to do the very thing that we all have failed to do, that the people of God could never pull off. And Jesus comes to be the one who fulfills the unconditional and the conditional at the same time and to usher into the world a whole new way that God will be present to his people. That's the good news of Jesus, that in him, God has come to be with us. And in him, God has done everything everything, so that you and I can know God, not on the basis of our own ability to perform. You and I can know God, not on the basis of our own consistency of faith. God can handle your flakiness, which is good news, because God can handle my flakiness. God can handle your doubt. God can handle your cynicism. God can, call, God can handle your flip-flopping, hot and cold spirituality. Because his grace and his love is not rooted in your performance or mine, but in his faithfulness alone. And that is good news that we all desperately need to know. You know, we, uh, we had a, I mentioned this great meeting with the elder and deacon candidates uh, yesterday. And one of the things that we talked about is our own experience of when we've, we've experienced theology to be vital to our own life or the life and ministry and witness of the church, and when we have experienced theology to be toxic to the life and ministry and witness of the church. And you can imagine, um, I've done, this is not the first time I've done this effort, uh, this exercise with groups, but every time that I've done it with groups, the lists are almost always identical. It's fascinating. Our experience just... it it lends uh, credibility to each of our individual testimony because we've all experienced very similar things. As we've talked about, what is theology that vitalizes our own spiritual life, that vitalizes the church, that makes our witness more beautiful and compelling, right? It's theology, these are some of the words that came up. It's theology that's humble. It's theology that deepens us right it's theology that actually brings healing and empowerment and a greater sense of agency in god's world it's theology that actually promotes learning and curiosity and flourishing and wholeness and justice and peace it's theology that helps us to believe and know we are god's beloved and helps us to actually orient our lives toward our neighbors so that we show up as a neighbor to a neighbor in a life-giving way it brings freedom it brings knowledge of our own being adopted into God's family. These are the things that we started to talk about around the, the vitality of theology and our need for it. And as we began, as we began to talk about, well, what makes toxic theology? Or what are, how does toxic theology manifest? You know, it's like some of the words or phrases that came up are toxic theology often is used as a weapon, T- toxic theology is used as a club to beat over the head somebody we've identified as the other, right? Or toxic theology makes us obsessive over drawing lines in the the places that we think are most important. Or toxic theology actually stifles learning and curiosity. Or toxic theology gains traction by way of fear-mongering, right? Or by way of creating in-groups and out-groups and policing the borders. In other words, Toxic theology is usually coming from a place of power for the purpose of preserving or gaining more power. And what strikes me about that as we sit with that in conversation with this episode from Solomon's Life, the toxic theology manifestations that we've named are all born out of the struggles for success, struggles of success, not the struggles of the wilderness. They're the kinds of things that happen when you're trying to preserve what you have or get more of it. It's not theology from the bottom up. It's the theology that comes from the top down that's really bent toward maintaining the status quo or preserving some sort of power. And as we think about that, as we think about what does it mean for us to be the church and to live in the presence of God and to seek to open our lives to God's meddling and God's transformation, I think it's important that we actually also remember that the way that this passage ends, Israel will become a proverb and a taunt among all peoples. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and i think what i what strikes me about that is god's willingness to be misunderstood and mocked and his willingness to have his own institution torn down when it goes rotten his willingness to have his own institution torn down when it goes rotten it is very true that jesus has said this is my church i'm going to build it and against my church the gates of hell will not prevail and that's i believe that with all my heart i also believe that the church that will prevail is the one that goes in the way of Christ, that's organized in the way of Christ, that's participating with God in what God is doing in the world, that's bringing vitality to the church and the world, and not the toxicity that ends up in a pile of ruin and rubble because it went rotten. Of course, Jesus is the one in whom we get even the clearer view of God's willingness to be mocked and misunderstood, right? Right? The cross shows us the character of God who's willing to endure the taunt and the hiss in order to, pre- to be present to his people and keep that story moving forward to the glorious horizon of his promised future and to not let that get hijacked by a people gone toxic who've turned away. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures the cross even as he despises its shame. And we see the unconditional and conditional promise of God converge at this one moment and one location of the cross. So friends, as we think about our own church and community, the unconditional love and grace of God is for you. God loves you. God loves us. His spirit is here. The Lord is nearer than we think. And that is unconditional The conditional part is, to what extent will we be part of it? To what extent will we pay attention to that? To what extent will we allow ourselves to get involved with God and what God is doing in the world? To what extent will we be the kind of church and the kind of Christians who live into the world in this vital way and not this toxic way? That we would be the church gathered around Christ, crucified and raised, following Jesus into the world and into the heavenly places by the way of the cross of love. That is the invitation for us. That is the good news for the world. And I believe as we consider what it looks like for us moving forward as a church to dwell in the presence of God and grow up more into the likeness of Christ, it's going to be in the way of the cross, of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in our many struggles. We have struggles that are born out of weakness. We have struggles that are born out of strength. We have struggles that arise from our experience of the wilderness and recognizing that the world in which we live is beyond our comprehension and control, and we feel vulnerable, and we wonder if you're there to help. We also have struggles that are born out of our own very real experience as powerful and intelligent people who are able to do things and as recipients of your gifts that secure us that we forget are from you. And so we become blind to our own dependence and we become proud of ourselves. Maybe we even feel like we need to take someone else down a peg in order to shore up our own pride. So we come with our struggles of the wilderness, and we come with our struggles of success. And we're so thankful that you come near to us in both of those places, that your eyes and your heart are in your church forever, and that your loving gaze and embrace are for us. And my prayer for us this morning is that your gaze and your love would break us, and remake us into the likeness of your Son, so that we may go forth into the world as trees of life and not bitterness, as life-giving streams and not a poisonous toxic cup. You can do that work, and we cannot, so we ask you to do it now. Remake us by your unconditional grace and love. Through Christ we pray. Amen.